Uh, last week, we we did actually follow the syllabus entirely. Uh, I'm not sure if maybe some of you didn't get the, the revised syllabus just before the class started, but we were completely on track with what had been sent out just before uh, we began. And uh, this week we are going to be following, I think, a little bit of some of those questions. So we're going to be doing our best to answer uh, some of the things that we had said we'd be talking about. Now, before that, though, I think it would be worthwhile to probably engage in a little rabbit trail uh, just from the start. And so that's what we'll do. And then we'll come back to the main stuff uh, virtually immediately. So uh, the first thing is, in terms of some of our discussion last week, I mean, it, it, it can be useful, I think, in terms of getting people to actually think and consider uh, how do we interpret Jesus? And, and how do we actually have any confidence that the way we look at Christ is the way that he actually is? And so looking at a variety of ways that people uh, perceive Jesus, how they enlist Jesus in their causes and all of the rest, I think can be uh, helpful in sort of a chastening way for us. That is, it, it can engender some humility. It can make us actually stop and think about how dogmatic we are when it comes to sort of having Jesus on our side for a variety of issues. Now, part of the reason, though, I think that we end up with this sort of plurality of interpretations of Jesus is that the Gospels themselves, of course, contain teachings of Jesus, but a lot of his teachings are very culturally specific, and then they need to be applied in fresh and new ways today. So, for example, when it comes to how who do you vote for? Well, Jesus never cast a vote for anyone because he didn't have democratic elections. So immediately you're, you're dealing with a completely different political system. How do you know that Jesus would even support democracy as a political system? Well, you don't. And, and so then to try to figure out how would Jesus navigate this political system, which he didn't even live under and said literally nothing about, I mean, you're, you're making a lot, you have a large number of inferences before you can arrive at a position where you can say, this is who Jesus would vote for. I mean, there's just, that's so foreign to anything in the gospels whatsoever. You're basically trying to adduce the most general broad based principles imaginable. And then by the time you come down to what you do in the ballot box, you're, you're, you're miles away from anything that you actually have explicitly stated in the gospels. So whenever you have long chains of reasoning, all it takes is one little misstep and you will distort, your conclusion will be distorted from the original premise. So I think part of the problem that we have is that we're, we're applying what we think about Jesus down long chains of reasoning and inference so that the conclusion is simply so foreign to anything Jesus would have even thought about that along the way, it's almost impossible for us not to intrude our own biases and prejudices and thinking and then to ascribe it back to Jesus. Now, having said that, I also think, though, that one of the things which is understandable and, and good, but it's a double-edged sword, is the fact that Christians want to submit all of life to Christ. That is, Jesus is our Lord. And so you, you really can't imagine anyone saying something like, I think Jesus wants me to vote Republican, but I'm going to vote Democrat. 
You can't really imagine anyone rebelling against the Lord that way, or, or to use sort of our, you know, our, our Canadian politics. You can't imagine anyone saying, I really believe that Jesus wants me to vote liberal, but I'm not going to vote liberal. I'm going to vote for the Green Party or something like that. Everything we do, we at least think is broadly compatible with faith in Jesus. And we also then tend to absolutize and universalize our own experience that way. So we'd say, if Jesus wants me to vote for the Green Party, then Jesus wants everyone to vote for the Green Party. Like, how could Jesus speak to an issue like that in a pluriform way? And so what you end up with is my view of what I think Jesus requires of me, but it's very difficult to maintain that without actually universalizing it and thinking that that's what everyone else should do. Now, there also are then in the Gospels, I think a wide variety of ways that you can interpret Jesus because narrative, a historical narrative can, is always patient of interpretation. That is Jesus doesn't always explain to you precisely what it is that he's saying or what he's doing. So for example, uh, in the gospel of Luke, you end up with um, what's sometimes called reversal theology. That is, in the Gospel of Luke, from the very beginning, the Messiah is coming into the world to turn the world upside down. And it's interesting because when the Messiah turns the world upside down, he's actually turning it back right side up. That is, the, the whole world has been distorted. And so Christ comes to turn things back the way they ought to be. And that includes bringing down the rulers and exalting the humble. That includes the rich go away hungry and the poor are well fed. And so in Luke's gospel, you get that in, uh, in uh, Elizabeth's song in Mary's Magnificat. So you get this in, in different places. And all through the gospel, there's an emphasis on Jesus reaching the world. That is, he reaches Gentiles, not just Jews. He reaches women, not just men. He reaches the poor, not just the rich. He reaches the marginalized and the prostitutes, not just the religious experts and, and those who have power and authority. So Luke's gospel really does. And there's, this is undeniable. Luke's gospel does have this reversal theology where the nobodies and the nothings of the world are exalted and those who are important in the eyes of the world are brought low. You read that and all of a sudden, the idea of Jesus with a preferential option for the poor and Jesus as the cultural revolutionary, there's a lot of purchase there. However, on the other hand, when Jesus is dealing with the Sadducees, who are theologically and ethically liberal, Jesus is hyper-conservative in the positions that he takes on a whole variety of issues. And so in one sense, you want to say, here's someone who is a revolutionary and very liberal and progressive, but you can also read gospel data and see that ethically, religiously, Jesus is very conservative. Well, who's the right, who's, who's the real Jesus? Well, he's both. And so, again, part of our problem is that we are always constraining Jesus to fit into Western 21st century categories or, you know, and as we went through history, whatever cultural era people live in, Jesus is always being fitted into those particular molds. But when he showed up in the first century, he actually transcended all of the molds around him. So you could never know what he was going to say. And I think this is actually one of the things that's fascinating. Uh, you know, as, as I listen to people, and, and one example of this would be um, 
you know, early on, I think most churches have landed about where they're going to be now, but early on in, in the lockdown a year ago, as weeks started going by, you know, there were debates about um, whether or not it was okay to have a communion service over Zoom. You know, does communion all need to be in the same room? What is the purpose and function of communion? You have all these questions being asked. And so some people insisted you could never have communion by Zoom. You needed absolutely every single person in the room. And, and there were arguments and debates back and forth and on and on and on it went. Um, one of the things that I thought about it, to be honest, was I have no idea what Paul would say about an issue like that. Like none. Um, Paul is forever surprising me. And I, I've read all of his words that exist, you know, more than once. And yet when I come to issues, I'm still surprised at what Paul says sometimes. You know, I remember teaching a course on C.S. Lewis and, you know, reading all of Lewis's works, you know, a couple times through it and starting to get a sense of what Lewis would think. And, and then every once in a while I'd come across an issue where I think, well, I bet I know how he, how he would track with this. And then, then I read what he actually wrote about the issue and find out that the way he came out it was totally surprising to me. Well, why is that? Well, it's because religious geniuses don't think like we do, right? I mean, we tend to think in certain ways and geniuses cr uh, think creatively. They pull things together. They have angles and perspectives. You would, it would never occur to you and it would never occur to you because you're not the Apostle Paul, right? So when it comes to Jesus then, one of the things that I think is when it comes to some of the issues of the day, I know how I think about it, but I have no idea how Jesus would think about it because I'm not Jesus. Like he was, he was always shocking his disciples, these disciples who lived with him. Jesus would get a question and he'd answer the question. His disciples would say like, what does that mean? You know, like, what, where are you coming from? I don't even understand what you're talking about. And with the Pharisees and Sadducees, they'd always come, they had their, their questions to trap him. And the answers were always amazing. He'd always evade the trap and get right to the linchpin and he'd give them something else. And the crowds were astounded. And I think that's one of the things that we need to recapture is, frankly, you listen to a lot of evangelicals and nothing that they ever think Jesus would say astounds them. That is, they always know exactly what he'd say. Here's an issue. This would be his perspective. Here's an election. This is how he'd vote. Here's this, this is what he'd think. Like, and we've just lost this wonder and awe of who Jesus is. He astounded people. And so I think a bit of humility would go a long way in recognition that the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus is Jesus and we're not is that you know, he approached life and understood truth in ways which is incredibly beyond what we can imagine or think. So when it comes to, again, figuring out how many inferences and assumptions and deductions did I need to make before I arrived at my conclusion about what Jesus would think, you start going back through that chain sort of self-consciously. And I bet if you're honest, you'll have to almost every place you'll stop and say, you know what, I'm actually not quite sure what direction Jesus would go at this point. But then that sets up the next domino and the next. So I think that's one of the reasons why when it was so many different Jesuses in terms of uh, enlisting him in all these different causes, and he has so many faces, is that you can get perceptions of him that which are accurate to a point from gospel data. But then we then take that information and we use our own thinking and rationalization to come up with a conclusion about what Jesus would say. So humility is a huge thing. I mean, just 
to, to pray that the Spirit will lead us and to trust. I mean, we want to do what Jesus would want us to do in all of the rest, but to recognize, you know, in the same way that we're in, it's, 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 I'll, I'll just say this and we'll move on because Sarah will, will yell if we don't follow the syllabus that I didn't even make the syllabus. Steph just arbitrarily created it one day. And so I'm trying to follow something I didn't even come up with. So this is not fair to me at all. Steph, don't unmute yourself. We're trying to have a course here. Okay. We don't have time for this. Um, but this is one of the ways I think that subtly we almost deny the deity of Christ. And we would never say it, but it seems to me that in the church, a ton of people will say really quickly, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We cannot comprehend the mind of God. We cannot fathom how God thinks. And yet they will also then turn around and be absolutely completely sure they fully understand the mind of Jesus. We know exactly how Jesus thinks. We might not say that. But when it comes to practical decisions, we are completely convinced we know exactly how Jesus would think. But if Jesus is God, then that can't possibly be true. If if God's thoughts go beyond our thoughts, then so do Jesus's. So we we sometimes undercut the deity of Christ practically by, by how we approach these things. But we also insult his intelligence. Like I mean, probably for a lot of us, we don't have much trouble admitting, you know, that that we were not in the same caliber as an Isaac Newton or an Albert Einstein or a Stephen Hawking or whoever. And yet, you know, again, we seem to think we completely understand the mind of Jesus. So that's just a, a few things. Does anyone have any, any questions or comments? Uh, anything they want to, they want to add? I don't know if, I don't know if Dennis and Mary want someone else to talk so that they stop being the central picture in my screen. I'm not sure if that's just me or if it's anyone else, but kind of nice. Any any questions or comments? All right. Well, we'll carry on then, and we will come up to some of the things that were on that poster syllabus, but it probably wouldn't do to approach it directly. So let's come at it just a little bit obliquely. It's not a rabbit trail. It's just an oblique approach to uh, these questions. First, maybe we can do uh, does anyone want a quiz? They want some points today. Anyone looking to looking to win some points? People are pretty excited about that. All right. Okay. We'll do this really, really quick. All right. Not a trick question. How many gospels are there? Four. Okay. So Sarah votes for, I will actually permit that to be considered the right response even though we're talking about canonical gospels. So, right, so you assume canonical gospels. Okay, so we'll say there's four. There's four canonical gospels. There's lots more that are free-floating out there, written a couple hundred years after Jesus, gospel according to Thomas being one of them. But fine, we'll go with four. All right. Um, which two gospels, because there's two of them, uh, contain material, sort of the traditional material that's used for the Christmas narrative? Which two gospels have our Christmas narratives? Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke. Very good. All right. I forgot you have points. All right, Sarah, you get uh, four Gospels. We'll give you four points. That seems fair. And for Matthew and Luke, that was two. So two is half of four. So we'll give you eight. I think that's how that would work. All right. So four to eight right now. Um, Using our number four, what's the first 
four words in the fourth gospel. In the beginning was. Yes, in the beginning was. So that's four times four is 16 points. So you are, you're nailing it. Now, can you finish that, that verse? I think so. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Very good. Excellent. 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 Oh, someone wrote in the, the Greek, actually, in our comments, transliterated, um, also a spelling error in the one, and that's also five words. But uh, you know, overall, not bad uh, for, for doing that. Um, okay, so you're at 16. So we have four, eight, and 16. It's very symmetrical. Um, how does Mark's gospel start? Do you remember the first verse of Mark's gospel? <laughs> Who can run and grab a Bible the fastest? I can just give you this one. Sorry, too late the for everyone. Of the gospel. Sorry, pardon? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Perfect. Thank you. The beginning of the good news or the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Christ or Jesus, the Messiah. I mean, some translations will bring that across as, you know, the beginning of the, the, the good news or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It really should be Jesus, the Christ or Jesus, the Messiah. There's a definite article there. And it's also um, it's a title without any doubt. So Mark is introducing this as a title, Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Now, Put that in your mind and put uh, John 1, 1 in your mind. Now, how does Matthew's gospel start? Just generically. Not, not the wording, but how does it begin? With the genealogy. Yes, that was a tie. So we'll give you both 85 points. Okay, perfect. Um, with the genealogy. And what's special about Matthew's genealogy? goes all the way back to Abraham. Uh, yes, it does do that. That's not the feature I was looking for. So minus 10 points. Uh, Sarah, go ahead. Um, I think it's 14 generations from Abraham to Moses. And then is it Moses? No, close though. Something about 14. Moses, sorry, Abraham to David. Yes. Yeah. Very good. And then David's in the center. Yeah. So David, um, so Interesting enough, I mean, there, there's debates about this, but if you take David's name in Hebrew and you assign um, numerical values to every letter, the way that was commonly done uh, in Gematria, you end up David equals 14. So there, there's this argument that actually this is intentionally structured this way um, to highlight David, but you have a symmetrical genealogy. And we know that uh, this has been curated. Like we, we know that from the Old Testament genealogy, certain people have been dropped out, which is fine. Because uh, the word you know, that we translate, you know, became the father of, that it's a generic word for ancestor. So as long as you're in the link, grandfather, great-grandfather, it doesn't matter. You, you, that is just establishing linkages, not exact, exact correspondence of every single generation. So Matthew's not being deceptive. What, what he's doing is he's, is he's saying, listen, there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile of Babylon to Jesus. So he's establishing the major figures, Abraham covenant head, David, the great king, Davidic covenant, exile, covenant, climactic covenant curses and restoration, and then the Christ. So he's basically saying 
all of God's Old Testament covenantal plan comes to fulfillment in Jesus. Like it, it's symmetrical blocks of God's plan leading you to Christ. Okay. Now, who? What other gospel has a genealogy? It's only one. They don't know. Is it Luke? It is Luke. Emily, you're killing it. Um, that's like I can't remember how many points people have. So. 800. That's 800 points. It's a good one. Uh, and that one is special because it actually, it's the only genealogy in scripture that goes backwards. And it, it starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God, which is a fascinating reference. Now, how does Luke's gospel start? And there is a point to this. Like, this isn't just like a, a, an intrusive quiz, you know, to, to get you stimulated. Sarah. Uh, he's writing an account to Theophilus or something like that? Yeah. 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 So Luke establishes, this is a historical account. I've carefully investigated these things. I've written up an orderly structured account. Um, I've made sure that these things are true. And then after he has that first four verse prologue, then who does he talk about? Zachariah. Yeah, exactly. Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? So he's establishing the miraculous conception of John the Baptist. And he's doing that because he's demonstrating how even the forerunner of Jesus, who's the subject of prophecy in Isaiah, uh, that historical fulfillment of the forerunner passages sets up the messianic ministry of Christ and also is what um, so it provides a historical context to what's going on. I mean, John the Baptist's first prophecy is in utero, right? I mean, it's when Elizabeth and Mary are both pregnant and Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and, and moved by the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb for joy. Uh, and so you have initial sort of in utero prophecies of John the Baptist and, and Christ. It's not merely when Jesus comes to be baptized. The Baptist is a, is a prophet before that. Okay. So, um, if you take those four gospel openings, then, sorry, I just have a question about the Immaculate Conception. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, you take those four openings to the gospels and immediately you have different perspectives, right? And, and very importantly. So in Matthew, you start by establishing the human lineage of Jesus. He is a real human being, but also the central covenantal turning point in all of human history. That's what you're told from the very beginning, just the way the genealogy works. Mark, uh, Mark is the first gospel written and, it, and you just dive right in. And of course, I know that all of you have read Matthew and Mark the last two weeks fully. Uh, so you're familiar with this. Uh, Mark just dives right in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Now, I know we know the word gospel means good news, but the word gospel was used before a gospel was written. Like when Mark sat down, he wasn't writing a gospel with a capital G. There, there was no such literature. He was just writing an account of Jesus. Okay, so, so no one wrote a gospel. The reason that we call it a gospel is because of this reference. You know, it's the beginning of the good news, the gospel. Now, gospel was used before Jesus came to earth. In what context? How was the word gospel used previous to Christ's appearing? Anyone recall? 
So the word gospel is just a, a normal cultural word that the Romans used. And so it sometimes is translated glad tidings or something along those lines, good news. And it was used when a Roman general would win a tremendous battle or, you know, Caesar would do something which he thought was really important. It would be published abroad. Hear the good news about this conquering war hero. Hear the good news about what Caesar has done. And so what the Christians do is the Christians appropriated these this term saying like the real good news the 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 best tidings in the world is not something a general has done it's not something caesar has done the real gospel isn't roman imperialism the real gospel is the triumph of christ and so in the same way uh the gospels actually use a lot of titles that were used of caesar they use titles that were used by Caesar for Jesus too. In some ways, what, what the what the gospel writers and, and the New Testament writers in the epistles as well are doing is they're saying, listen, from both a religious and a secular perspective, the fulfillment of what you're looking for is Jesus. The one who really brings good news, not Caesar, Christ, right? Now, Mark's gospel also then, giving you these titles, the Christ, the Son of God, Son of God is a title as well. And we might see this in, in next week or the week after. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Depends on how many distracting rabbit trails you try to take me down. Um, the, the reality is these titles also occur in the most important places in Mark's gospel. So son of God is an extraordinarily important title uh, in Mark's gospel to help you understand Jesus. It's the first one given here. Or sorry, sorry, it's in verse one. It's also the last title given to Jesus in Mark's gospel. So you remember the centurion at the cross, surely this man was a son of God or the son of God, depending how you want to bring it across. Son of God starts Mark's gospel and ends Mark's gospel in terms of a scriptive term. So then one of the things we need to do is understand what does it mean to be the son of God? That's something that we'll look at in the following week. So Luke then establishes, this is, his, this is real history. You can investigate this history. You can understand Jesus through historical investigations. We're not making this up, right? There are eyewitnesses. This is in line with fulfillment of prophecy starting in Isaiah and with John the Baptist. Then in John, John, you start with a declaration of the deity of the word, who then in verse 14, the word became flesh. So Matthew starts with humanity. Mark starts with Jesus' public witness. Luke starts with history and conception. John starts with deity and creation. That is in the beginning. And, and all through John 1 through 18, you have all of these Genesis 1 references. You know, word, God speaks, with, God creates through the word. In him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You know, John 1, 2. Agent of creation. In him was light. Let there be light. That light was the life of man. I mean, so, so you have all of these sorts of ideas going on in John 1, which is clearly anchoring the word, the logos, in Genesis 1 in creation. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about um, what logos means in a bit. So you start those gospels, though, and, and all you need to do is read a few verses, you know, a, a dozen verses or so in every one of the four canonical gospels, and you're already getting different perspectives of Jesus. You're, you're already being given different glimpses of him. And if all you had were the openings of the four Gospels, you would know he's a full human being 
and the turning point of God's covenant plan. He's the Messiah and the Son of God. He's a real historical figure, the fulfillment of prophecy. And he's actually divine. He's deity. He is God and the agent of creation. That's a lot of material for a few verses, but also really different perspectives, right? So if you so you start out, you say, well, well, is Jesus a man? Well, yes. Well, is Jesus God? Yes. Then you need to start processing that data. So what I'd like to do um, for the remainder of our time this morning is I want to look at uh, Trinity and then uh, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Now, I'm not going to be drawing many theological points out of this. In a sense, this is going to be simply data. So next week, we'll pick up sort of formalizing and theologizing out of this. But one of the things I think is really important is often at this point in, in our evangelical circles, we assume the theological conclusion, but that actually makes us very vulnerable in some ways because we don't know the data points that went into formulating that conclusion in the first place. So what I wanted is I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at uh, sort of the biblical data for the humanity and deity of Christ and we can start pulling it together next week. Okay, does anyone have any, any questions or comments, objections, concerns, things you're angry about? Anyone want a group counseling session? You, know, you, wanna, you wanna share your heart, like whatever, whatever you want is totally fine. All right, I'll take that as a no. So in terms of Trinity then, this is not going to be an exposition of the doctrine. Uh, I'm basically going to assume it. I mean, if this was a different course, then we'd have to spend more time on these sorts of things. Uh, but let me let me ask you how, you know, most of us, I'm assuming, are going to say we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, why? Why do we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity? Like what biblical data went into early Christian thinking to determine that God is triune? And, and what is the doctrine of the Trinity anyway? I mean, I think this is, it's, it's been misstated enough that we, we've created a, a fair number of problems for ourselves uh, by not being able to even articulate it properly. And just add in parentheses, one of the things that I always do um, when, when I talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come to the door, is they will always almost invariably talk about the Trinity in sort of negative ways. And, and I will always ask them to, just for my sake, so I know, so we all are on the same page, I'll ask them to please define what they mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and I have yet to ask that to a Jehovah's Witness and have them be able to properly articulate what the doctrine is. And then I'll try to explain to them that, um, you know, it, it tends to be less than courteous to reject something that you literally don't even understand. So, you know, if, if you don't want to believe in the Trinity, that's fine, but please at least, please at least know what you don't believe in, you know, <laughs> instead of a caricature. So, all right. So what is the, what is the doctrine of the Trinity then? In, in its most basic form, how do we understand that God is triune? I can wait all day. Uh, 
You can even Google it. I'll, I'll speak up. <laughs> uh, basic doctrine of the Trinity, I guess, that one God in three persons, um, most simply said. So that there's three persons within the Godhead. And I guess for biblical data, um, some of the strongest data I think we have is in um, the Great Commission, where it talks about baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you get the connection of those three as equal. Um, and at least for the Holy Spirit part, part we have um, emphasis on Jesus's uh, divinity in the way that he's partnered with God in creation. Um, in Colossians, I think I think it's gonna be really bad. It's gonna sh uh, show my lack of biblical text right here but and then um yeah and then getting the holy spirit brought into the same collection of the three in in the letters of the apostles yeah no that's actually very helpful so so here, here's a little tip for you um just just to appear never never draw attention to what you don't know um so so what you want to do and i'm forever doing there, there, there's always generic categories so some people they can say well you know Romans 6.14 says, other people, it's like, well, Romans 6, right? So you always need to know what level should we, or you can just say Romans or Paul or in the New Testament letters or the New Testament, or sometimes you, you just want to go with, well, the Bible says, that's what I'm doing all the time. I have no idea. Or like the Psalms, it's in there somewhere. It's a really big book. Like in the Psalms, I'm sure someone said, and if they hadn't, they should have, you know, that this is something true. So you don't need to say Colossians, just Paul because you know, you're right. Paul is forever linking Father, Son, and Spirit in in passages where you would never, you could never imagine Paul talking about, you know, we, I'll just make something up so you don't feel badly. Uh, you know, we, we praise the Father and are saved by Peter through the sanctifying work of the Archangel Michael. Like, you, you would never say that. But you get unashamedly all kinds of references in Paul where Father, Spirit, and Son are put together in those kinds of same sentences of a description of praise and spirituality and all of the rest. So you're, you're, you're exactly right. Now, at its most basic, um, the data is very clearly uh, that there is one God. Okay? This, is, this is clearly established. And in fact, there may be hints, there may be hints of plurality in God in the Old Testament, but that really is potential. I mean, that, that's speculative. It, there might be on the basis of plural references. Let us make God, let, let, let us make man in our own image. You know, the Tower of Babel, let us go down and see this thing they're making. Isaiah, who shall we send? Who will go for us? Like there, there may be some hints of plurality in God, but plural isn't necessarily three. Uh, you know, it can be two, it can be 18. And there's other ways of interpreting these texts where it's not talking about plurality in the Godhead whatsoever. I mean, it, it's not a surprise that no one in the history of the world who has only had the Old Testament has been a believer in the Trinity, okay? And so it's something which, which it's the, the Old Testament data isn't incompatible with Trinitarianism, but it's not clearly taught there at all. It's, in, it's based on New Testament data. And the New Testament data is basically you have one God, which no one in the New Testament ever denies or contradicts, but the Father is considered God. And the son is considered God and the spirit is considered God as well. And also like at Jesus's baptism, all three are active at the exact same time. 
So it's not just a modalism. It's not that God takes on the role of father or son or spirit at different times and in different ways. It's that there actually are different beings or different, different centers or different persons who are active and operating simultaneously, yet there's only one God. So then the spirit will fill Jesus and lead him out into the desert where he prays to the father and things like that. So it's not that God just takes on roles. It's that there's something in the nature of his being. There's one God, but there is a plurality of acting persons. And so if you can't understand anything else, because we don't fully understand this doctrine for sure. I mean, one of the things that you, you basically, the, the, the basic data is this. There is one God. The father is God. The son is God. The spirit is God. Right. And so you have three persons in one God. Now, I think and this is just pure speculation on my part, which means it's almost certainly right. Uh, I suspect that the reason you only have hints at best of plurality in God at the beginning, why the Old Testament is so focused on monotheism, is that every culture around Israel had a plurality of gods. They were polytheists. They had many, many, many different gods. And so I think asserting any kind of plurality explicitly would have led to polytheism in terms of the interpretation. So it takes centuries of drilling into the people. There is only one God. You get that concept after centuries and centuries and centuries. Then you can start to add the nuance that in this one God, absolute monotheism, there is a plurality of persons. Now, it's not a logical contradiction uh, because the oneness and the threeness are asserted of different things. I mean, so the law of non-contradiction you know, states you know, something roughly along the lines of, you know, A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same way. So you just express something along those lines. So we are not saying God is one person and three persons. We're not saying there is one God and three gods. The oneness and the threeness are different. The oneness is in terms of nature, attributes, um, essential properties, so to speak. The pluralities of persons. So one nature, but this nature exists or is shared by three persons. Now, the distinction then, and this is really important to understand in terms of Trinity. The distinction then is not distinction in nature or attributes. The distinction is only about person. So the father is not more powerful than the son. The son is not more holy than the Holy Spirit. The, the spirit doesn't know more than the son. So you have this absolute radical, complete identity in nature and essence. The only distinctives then are distinctives in personal relationship. So although they share the exact same nature, every person in the Trinity can speak from the first person perspective in relation to the others. So the son is an I and to the son, the father is he. And to the son, the father and spirit are they. So you can use different pronouns amongst the persons in the Godhead because they relate to one another. Okay? Now, the father then 
eternally. So there's never a time when the son doesn't exist, but the father eternally generates the son, gives him personal existence, and grants to him from eternity past to have the property of life in himself as a person. And then the father generates the spirit or the father and son together generate the spirit. This is a, a huge debate. This is one of the reasons why there's a split uh, historically between sort of the Western church and the Eastern Orthodox church. You ever wonder why is, why is there, you know, this, this Eastern church and this Western church? Um, a lot of it, a lot of it was more complicated. This was very political, but some of it came down to the Western church probably very illegitimately um, inserted this clause called the filioque clause into a creed saying that the that the spirit was generated not from the father but from the father and they added the words and the son and so then the eastern orthodox said you, know, you, you can't just add to creeds this way and so there's a, there, that's one of the major reasons why there's this rupture you know for a thousand years uh, between the east and the western churches now as Sarah mentioned rightly, the New Testament often links Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in contexts where it's clear that they're all God. And at individual places, all through the New Testament, uh, you know, they're ascribed deity, they're praised, they're prayed to, uh, they function, they, they discharge divine functions, etc. So you have this triune God. Now, that is not a careful, a nuanced, or even a very clearly articulated doctrine. This is very quick, right? Um, and all of that is sort of in service to establishing a baseline for how Jesus can actually be God. Uh, how can Jesus actually be fully God and fully man? Well, you can't have the Son being fully God unless you have a plurality of persons in the Godhead. So this is where we start with John then to say there's different perspectives, there's different ways of doing it, which is why the Gospels construct their Gospels differently. For some, you can start with the humanity of Jesus because that's how most people interacted with him historically. That is, when you met Jesus, you didn't originally just go, oh, there's God. There's a second person in the Trinity. I bet he took on human form somehow. You were confronted by a man. And as you thought about Jesus and as Jesus taught you and as you walked with him and as he explained who he was and as he did what he did, eventually categories began to be built up that this is a man, but he's not merely a man. He's a man who also incredibly has the nature of God. He's both man and God. And so that's how most people came to accept the deity of Christ. It was through meeting him as undeniably a human being first and then over time learning realizing this is not a, this is not a normal person this is not a mere mortal this person is a man but also god john comes out the other way now john's also likely the last gospel written i mean they, they, you've had christian teaching for decades and so now john comes in he says actually you know what? you can also if you really truly want to know jesus you can't start with jesus jesus has a historical beginning there was a time when jesus did not exist but there was never a time when the son did not exist the son was there in the beginning the son is god the son is the agent of creation the son becomes flesh and so no matter what you can approach it through different pathways 
But at the end of the day, logically, you will get to a point, point where in terms of not historical, but in terms of logical priority, you need to start with the deity. If you can't get to a monotheistic being who exists in a plurality of persons, then you'll have nothing in which the incarnation actually makes sense. And this is why at Christmas, we don't just have Christmas, we have Advent. That is, Advent is the inbreaking, the appearing of the Son of God in the world. If the Son of God isn't eternal, if the Son of God you know, isn't there in the beginning, you don't have an Advent. You have a birth of someone special, but you don't have an Advent. You don't have an inbreaking. Right? And so even sort of the logic of Christmas, the, the logic of Christ, it, there's a historical beginning. But to fully understand Jesus, you need to move back a little bit. You need to move back sort of eternally, just, just a small step. You, know, you need to move back eternally to establishing that this actually is the Son of God in a way which speaks of full deity. Now, when you arrive then at John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, we, we likely all know this, but I need to have a drink and someone needs to earn some points. So what is the word in Greek that we translate as word in English? Logos. Very good. And since that's a foreign language and five letters, we'll do five times eight. And so that's 600 points. So very well done. All right. So you have Logos. And logos is obviously translated as word. It can mean word or speech in context of John 1 in creation. God speaks. He creates through his word. He speaks, let there be light, and there is light. And so you get the idea that somehow the speech of God is not just personified, but a person. It's very interesting. Um, in fact, John Frame, a, a theologian and philosopher, has what he calls the linguistic model of the Trinity, where the Father speaks, the Son is the Word, and the Spirit. In, in Hebrew and Greek, uh, the word for spirit, ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek, uh, the word for spirit also means wind. It means spirit, wind, or breath. And so Frame argues that when you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in, the, in, in Genesis 1-2, the creation is Trinitarian. That is, it's the Father speaks, the Son is the Word, and the Spirit is the breath which brings the Word out. It's a very, it's a very interesting way of thinking about things. Um, so you have that in terms of Hebrew, and then also, you know, you have what's called something called the Debar Yahweh, that is the Word of the Lord. And the Word of the Lord is an active agent in the Old Testament. So the, uh, Yahweh says, my word shall go out and will not return to me void. We love to quote that verse, and we don't add the rest, which is, but will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. That is, the word doesn't do whatever we want it to do. The word does what God wants it to do. The Debar Yahweh builds things up or tears things down. And so the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is the, the active agent of God that gets things done. But there was also, as you all remember, uh, as you will recall from your, your love of the pre-Socratic philosophers, uh, there was also a pre-Socratic philosopher named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus had a philosophical con conception of the Logos. Does anyone remember what Logos meant for Heraclitus? This is worth 97 million points. 
And I want those points. So I will answer my question. Heraclitus, how the logos, Heraclitus is the one, we get this sort of idea. Um, you can't step into the same river twice. You've heard that, right? And so Heraclitus says, Ponta Re, that is, everything's in flux. Everything is always changing. Can't step into the same river twice sort of thing. Except that it's still the same river, right? And, and so even though everything's in flux, something is holding things together. So he says, how can you actually live in the universe where things are always changing, but it's not pure chaos? And he says, there has to be a logical, rational principle that holds everything together. And he calls that logical, rational principle, the logos. So you come then to Colossians, interestingly enough, or Hebrews 1, where the son is sustaining all things by his powerful word, or where in him all things hold together. You say, my goodness, that sounds an awful lot like Heraclitus and the Logos philosophy. So there's an argument. Does John by Logos mean Old Testament Hebrew concept or Greek philosophical concept? And I want to say, I think he means both, actually. I think what he's arguing is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that rich Old Testament concept. And Jesus is also the fulfillment of everything the Greek philosophers were hoping to find. But what they had in some sort of abstract logical principle, you actually had in the second person in the Trinity. So that Heraclitus wasn't completely wrong, but he was wrong to think that it was an impersonal materialistic force. It wasn't just a principle. It was a person, right? and it's this person who is the creative agent of God, who is God, and who holds everything all together. It's this one who becomes flesh. Right? So John 1.1 1, 1 is, is, is a pretty significant passage and verses following in terms of the deity of Christ. Now, another verse that is one of the best uh, one of the clearest for the deity of Christ comes near the end of John. So John 20, 28. And this is when Jesus appears to the disciples and he appears to Thomas and he shows Thomas, you know, his, his wounds. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And it's a reference to Jesus. The, you know, the Jehovah's witnesses will say that whenever you have the definite article before um, God or before, you, then that's God, the father. And so in Greek, the definite article is ha. And, and so here, Thomas literally says, my ha kyrios kai ha theos. That is my the Lord and the God. He uses a definite article before both. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, he didn't mean that Jesus was God. He just, he just got excited and blasphemed. Well, actually, that's not likely to be the case, because as a Jew, if you blasphemed, you were stoned to death. So they were pretty motivated to not blaspheme. Um, also, they didn't use language that way. Like, we're the ones who use the name of Jesus and the name of God as just sort of flippant, you know, throwaway words. No one in the first century talked about God that way. So there's a complete misreading of, of linguistic history. But also, it's very difficult to imagine Thomas blaspheming in the presence of the risen Christ and Jesus saying what he says next, which is, blessed are you, right? And so Jesus blesses him for what he says. And he goes on to say, well, actually, more blessed are those you know, who haven't seen and who will believe, but nonetheless. So you have this complete description, the highest description of deity, my Lord and my God. 
Then Romans 9, 5 says, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, these ones that I'll give you from the epistles about the deity of Christ, I will say every single one of them is contested in terms of grammatical translation. Okay. However, I think you could make what is honestly, in terms of, of grammar, in terms of translating from the Greek, the grammatical decision or the translation decisions tend to actually not be made on the basis of grammar, but on the basis of theology. That is, some will translate Romans 9, 5, which says, there's the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. They'll try to detach God from Messiah so that it's, we trace the human ancestry of the Messiah and God is to forever be praised. So they're trying to parse out the sentence that way. And the only reason they do that is not because of the grammar. The grammar is clear. It's because of the theology. That is, there are people who who believe that the New Testament simply does not refer to Jesus as divine. And so in order to maintain that, you can't translate texts that refer to Jesus as divine as if they're calling Jesus divine. So there really is a theological agenda because the, the grammatical constructions are not complicated. There's a bias which pushes people in particular directions. So here what's fascinating in Romans 9 is you get both the humanity and the deity who is through his trace, the human ancestry of the Messiah. That is, he is a human being, but he's also God forever, forever or God overall to be forever praised. And then Titus 2.13 says, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, the grammar is clear. God and Savior are linked together grammatically. So it is not, we look for the appearing of the glory of our great God, sort of comma, and Savior Jesus Christ, as if we're looking for the appearance of God and Jesus. It's we're looking for the appearance of our God who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the identification, again, grammatically, it's not difficult. And then 2 Peter 1.1 says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. God and Savior are both linked together unbreakably in the grammatical structure and both apply to Jesus Christ. So who, who is this Jesus Christ? No one denies that Savior is linked to Jesus. He, we're waiting for our, through our, the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But God, grammatically, is tied to Savior. God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which means Jesus Christ is being referred to explicitly, not just as Savior, but also as God. The, the Greek grammar is incontrovertible. In fact, uh, there, there, there's a rule of Greek grammar. Uh, I know that you all, that was just fascinating for you. You all love Greek grammar. Uh, it's called the Granville Sharp rule. And in the Granville Sharp rule, the rule is this. When you have uh, two singular nouns, which are not proper names. So God and Savior are singular nouns and they're not proper names. It, it's not Paul and Peter, right? So if you have proper names, this rule doesn't apply. But where you have two singular nouns that are not proper names, like God and Savior, and they fall under the same article, okay? So there's only one article, and then two, 
and then two nouns that are not proper names, then whenever you have this, this grammatical construction, one article, two nouns, not proper names, those are always, they're always linked together. That's how Greek grammar worked. And so when you have, and this is the exact construction you have here, God and Savior are not proper names, two nouns linked by one article connected to Jesus. So there is no doubt grammatically that what you're being told here is that we have, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus, that is, Jesus is as much being called God here as he is being called Savior. Then okay. uh, one more, this is a little bit different. You know, moving back to Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, wonderful counselor, the word wonderful is the closest word that the Hebrews have to what we would call divine, right? So, so wonderful is sort of the, this high ascription of, of um, divineness of some sort. So for to us, this, this divine counselor is going to be born, the mighty God. Now, you start to get a whole lot of paradoxes here. I mean, how can a son be given who's the mighty God? Um, he's the everlasting father. Again, how is a son given who's the everlasting father or literally the father of eternity? Um, he's the prince of peace. So, so you get these rich, rich paradoxes, which I don't think anyone, frankly, could really fully sort out until you have Christ. Because he is the son who is born, who is God. I mean, at some level, you have to water down every one of these phrases as being incredible hyperbole unless there's a literal fulfillment that little literal fulfillment can only be in a human being who is born who is god and so i think you know this was this created all kinds of puzzles for people trying to sort out what exactly is, is this verse talking about who is this being this being is gonna be incredible but how can you have a son born who's the, the father of eternity etc so here you have again i think some pretty strong evidence that you're going to have uh, the, it's, a, it's a paradox, but you're going to have a son who's born who actually shares the properties of deity. Then Hebrews 1.3 says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. So you have that, that creative uh, context. He, he sustains everything, but he's also the exact representation of the being of God. Well, no human being can, can, can be that. I mean, to, to be the exact representation of the being of God, you need to be co-equal and co-terminous with God. This, you can't be the exact representation of the entire being of God unless you're infinite as well. And so to be for this to be possible, you need to be divine. Then Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So you have a human being, a human body, the entire fullness of deity is residing in this body. Fully God, fully man. And then Philippians 2.6 says, being in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage, depending on how you want to translate it. 
Um, the word nature is literally form. So some of you will have translations and you'll be familiar with this passage where it says, who being in the very form of God. And, and sometimes people read that and say, well, he wasn't really God. He was only in the form of God. He appeared to be God, right? But that's actually a complete misreading of the language. So in terms of, we talked about Heraclitus. We also, we all love Plato, uh, like, like, not Plato. I mean, we all love that too. Uh, but we love Plato. And Plato, of course, has this doctrine of the forms. And some of you are familiar with that. What, what, what is Plato's doctrine of the forms all about? Or not all about. What's a little bit about the, the, the Platonic doctrine of forms? All right, for 100 million points, I'll answer that. Um, Plato has this view where everything here in this world is a copy and a shadow of ultimate reality. So ultimate reality isn't material or physical. Ultimate reality is this realm of what he would call the forms or the ideas. But it's important to realize they're not mental constructs. They're actually metaphysically, the, the, they're really real, okay? And so we have all these horses running around down here on earth. The reason they're horses is because they're copies of the perfect horse, the form of the horse that exists in this perfect, immutable, unchangeable, eternal realm. Now, the word form then for the Greeks does not mean the appearance. It means the substance and the reality. Okay. So the form of the horse is the real horse. The ones down here are copies of it. So to be in the morphe is the word that we translate as form. Paul says that Jesus is in the morphe, the form of God, the form of deity, who being in very nature is actually a, a, almost a perfect way of translating it because it's talking about the very essence and nature of God, being in very nature God, being in the very form of God, not in appearance, but he's actually the real fullness of God. And then Paul will say, and he might be quoting a, a previously written Christian hymn, we're not sure, but Paul's at least using it and endorsing it, that being in the very form of God, he also became a human being. So that you have the highest ascription in, in, in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, you have this highest description of both the humanity and deity of Christ. Okay? And you start with the deity. He's in the very form, the nature of God. Now there's other New Testament data. So for example, um, Jesus is Lord, and, and we're familiar with this. Um, the word kyrios is translated as Lord in the New Testament, and it can be a polite term, um, you know, sir, master, just sort of a polite form of address. But there, it's also the word that the Greeks used to translate the divine covenantal name Yahweh when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament. So kyrios is also Yahweh. That is, it, it's the highest name of God. And there are places in the New Testament, where Jesus is given this title, Lord, where it's clear it's not merely a polite form of address. It's clear that it's actually ascribing to him deity. And you can look those verses up on, on your own time uh, if you have a concordance. Now, there are also texts, interestingly enough, where New Testament authors will take Old Testament passages, which are clearly referring to Yahweh. Is they're clearly referring to God. But then they use those verses and apply them to Jesus as if Jesus is the fulfillment of these texts, which are clearly about God. 
So for example, in Acts 2, uh, Pentecost, Peter preaching, and you recall that Peter quotes Joel 2, 31 through 32, he says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon uh, to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Joel, it is obvious the day of the Lord is the day of Yahweh. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. But when Peter's preaching on Pentecost, he's telling them to, to put their faith in Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord referring to Jesus will be saved. And, and Paul says the same thing in Romans 10, 13. Paul quotes that same text from Joel 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Paul's context, he's telling people, you need to call on the name of Jesus. Well, how does anyone take a verse from the Old Testament, which is clearly about Yahweh, and apply it to Jesus? We can only do that if you believe that Jesus is God. Right? And so this kind of Old Testament, this, this kind of biblical usage actually is about as strong of evidence as you could ever desire when it comes to establishing the deity of Christ. Because no one in the New Testament becomes a polytheist. No one. They retain monotheism the entire time. It's one of their, their theological distinctions. It's non-negotiable. There's only one God. And yet they're applying these Bible verses about God to Jesus as a human being. That's actually something else to just, just note off to the side. Um, one of the amazing things about people worshiping Jesus as God is that the Jews were the last people on earth who had categories for sort of plurality in deity. They weren't polytheists, they were strict monotheists. And so it was the height of blasphemy to say that a human being was God. So something massively compelling had to happen to get these strict monotheists to apply verses about their Lord to Jesus himself. They, they clearly believed that Jesus was God, and there was nothing in their religious culture which would sort of move them in that direction whatsoever. Another text. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, hands up. <laughs> can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can now. Okay. I unmuted. Um. Was it Christians or was it Jews that were accused of being quote unquote atheists because they only worship one God or did I make up that story? You know Not what? Accused of labeled as. Yeah. So, so here, here's the truth. I um, I'm just making stuff up. Like I, I, I assume you're not going to fact check these verses. I'm just throwing out verse first references and making stuff up to see how well you know your Bible. So it's okay if that's what you did. Um, you're you're not making up the story, but just just. A, the slightest bit of nuance is needed to make it uh, completely accurate. So Jews were accused of being atheists by the Romans. And they were accused of being atheists because you would go into any temple in the ancient world and you would see an image of the God. That is, there was always a statue. There was always an idol. Hmm. You go into the Jewish temple and there's nothing. Well, where's your God? And so people, you know, not for the first time making fun of people of other religions, you know, the, the Jews were mocked as atheists because, you know, you don't even have a God. Like we go into your temple, there's no God there. So it was sort of a, they weren't, they weren't seriously accused of being atheists, but the idea was, you know, your God's not even there. You don't even have one. Your temple's empty was sort of the idea. Uh, okay. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, 
Okay, so sorry, there's a comment here. I'm just going to take some time, a moment to read it. Uh, let's see the okay, yeah, so I see Matt's question and it's to everyone so everyone else can answer that uh, on their own time. I, I, I might come back to that if we have time. Uh, I'm going to cover a few things. One thing though would be to say, one of the one of the things that becomes extraordinarily important then of course is is a view of the doctrine of scripture that is if what peter and paul write is the word of god inspired by the spirit then actually there's a sense in which um this is one of, this is actually one of my problems with the red letter bibles is the red letter bibles in some some cases if you're not careful you can almost think that those words are more important but they're not uh they're they're no more or less the word of God in a high with a high doctrine of scripture than the the editorial comments around them, right? And, and so it depends how you take the New Testament, and because because at that point too, if we're going to start uh, once there's skepticism about Peter and Paul, for example, um, you you can just as easily be skeptical about the words of Jesus as they're recorded. We we, we don't have Jesus didn't write a gospel, so we're completely dependent on what people wrote about Jesus and said what Jesus said. So there's, you know, things that we can, we, that, that's a different topic though. And, uh, and Sarah's already mad that we're not following the syllabus correctly or some such thing. And I didn't even make the syllabus. So blame Steph. Uh, anyway, moving on then, another text from Jesus mediated through John, you know, John eight fifty eight, where, you know, Jesus is teaching the, the, the Jews and he says, you know, that you're not Abraham's children because Abraham saw my day rejoiced and was glad. They say, how have you seen? You haven't seen Abraham. You're not even 30 years old. Uh, you know, and then Jesus says, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. And he uses the, the covenant name of Yahweh. At which point the Jews, completely understanding what he said, pick up stones to stone him. Now, Jesus does not then say, oh, you misunderstood me. In fact, he, he doubles down on it. And so what you have is Jesus himself taking the, the covenant name of Yahweh to himself, I am. And the idea there is like father, like son. You know, Jesus, in this is one sense, is the son. We'll talk, actually, I'll, I'll save this for next week. I'll just give you a little teaser now. Uh, Jesus, in one sense, is the son, not because of his ontology, but because of his function. That is, Jesus is the son of God because he does what the father does, like father, like son. We'll talk more about that later. John 5, 18 says the same, has the same idea. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So in John 5, the Jews fully understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is making himself equal to God. And then Jesus says in John 5, 23, an incredible verse, which is either true or the height of blasphemy. He says that, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. In other words, can you imagine if I said, seriously, you know what? You should honor me the same way you honor God. It's either complete blasphemy or it's true. Jesus has no problems like you should honor me exactly the way you honor the Father. Jesus also, different verses. I mean, John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse. Um, Jesus refers to uh, several times, you know, how he has come down from heaven. So this is not just a normal birth. He, he's not born into the world hoping to go to heaven. He talks about how he came down from heaven. And he also talks about how he will one day ascend back to the Father where he came from 
in the first place. Uh, John 10, 33, the Jews say, we are not stoning you for any good work. They reply, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You, a mere man, claim to be God. The Jews fully understood his claims. Then Matthew 26, 65 through 66, the high priest tore, tears his clothes and says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? And again, in every one of these contexts, Jesus does not say, no, you've misunderstood me. I'm not claiming to be God. I mean, that's the first thing I would say if someone thought I was claiming to be God. The first thing I would say is, oh, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant to communicate. Jesus never does that. He always doubles down. He is exactly claiming these things. Right? They haven't misunderstood him. And then not only that, but if Jesus wasn't God, if he really was a blasphemer, you have a really hard time dealing with the resurrection where God vindicates Jesus. That is, God raises him from the dead because he is well pleased with everything Jesus did and taught. In other words, the resurrection is, is God basically putting a signature across Jesus' life. I approve of this, right? which God would never do, clearly, if Jesus was a blasphemer. Uh, just a, a couple more bits of data. It's a fascinating identity statement in Revelation 1.8. In Revelation 1.8, God, this is clearly God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22.13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He said, wait a minute, Revelation started with a declaration, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and it's the Lord God speaking. It ends with the declaration, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and it's Jesus speaking. Well, how could that be? Well, it's because Jesus is God. I'll just give you a couple of verses. I won't, I won't read these. But uh, John 2.11, uh, John 17.5, and John 1.14 all explicitly refer to the glory of Jesus, not merely I'm showing you the Father's glory or the glory of God, but I am revealing to you my glory. We have seen his glory, we are told. This is the first of his signs that by which he revealed his glory, right? And then in John 17, Jesus is asking, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I mean, this is not a, a normal person. This is someone saying, Father, we shared glory before the world began. You know, glorify me with this same glory. Actually, I just want to make one comment. As, as, as I've been talking, like you, I'm talking and not paying it. Like, as words are coming out of my mouth, I'm not paying attention to what I'm saying either, just like you're not paying attention to what I'm saying. I've been thinking about what Matt has written over here. I just want to make one comment because my, my brain is a dual processor, which is why I run on so many different rabbit trails. I'm always thinking about different things at the same time and nothing well. Um, a stronger argument for the deity of Christ, no, don't apologize, it's, it's lovely. Uh, a, a stronger argument for the deity of Christ might potentially come from Jesus, depending on our doctrine of scripture, except when I said that it's the strongest argument, what I meant was grammatically. That is, there, there's no stronger grammatical argument than the statements you get. So if you want a verse which clearly says Jesus is God, grammatically, you will not find uh, a stronger passage than what you get with the explicit declarations in Peter and Paul. Although even with that, I want to modify that. Um, Thomas, my Lord and my God, that's pretty clear. John 1, 1, that's pretty clear. You know, Jesus referred to himself as Yahweh, that. So, so, I mean, there's a lot of very clear passages, but in terms of direct explicit 
Uh, yeah, and Revelation as well. So that explicit, direct, Jesus is God. You don't have too many statements in the New Testament where someone says, oh, by the way, Jesus was God. But it's the whole atmosphere is that he was God. But those verses in Peter and Paul are what are some of the few that are grammatically strong. If you need a verse that says Jesus was God, those are the ones that explicitly say it. Okay. All right. Um, something else, though, and, and this becomes a, a bit inferential, but it's still very, very strong, is... Uh, that Jesus is worshipped. Worship is for God alone. There's no doubt about that. And yet, and so even in Revelation 19.10, in Revelation 19.10, John falls at the feet of an angel. Apocalyptic literature, um, and Revelation is not quite apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. It, it's, a, it's an epistle and it's prophetic, sort of this quasi-mix of genres. But in apocalyptic literature, angels mediate visions. And so John's vision is also mediated through an angel. At the end of the vision, he falls down to worship this angel. And the angel says, don't do that. <laughs> I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Okay. This is the response of every created being who honors the Father. Don't do it. Don't worship me. Worship God. Matthew 28, 17, after the resurrection, when they saw him, they worshiped, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They worshiped Jesus after his resurrection. Hebrews 1, 6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Acts 7, 59 through 60, Stephen is being stoned to death. And he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That is, he directs his prayer to Jesus. He prays to Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then Revelation 5, 12 through 13, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, that is God the Father, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That is, this is in God's throne room. And these are all of the angels of creation. And in the exact same stanza, they address one set of praise to God and the Lamb. So Jesus is worshipped in the heavenly throne room, in the very presence of God by angels who at the end of the book will say, don't worship us, worship God alone. I mean, you almost, to me, I actually am not sure there's a stronger argument for the deity of Christ than that passage uh, in terms of who he is. Now, interesting enough, that passage also gives you the humanity of Christ beforehand. You know, looking for the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This, he really is a human being. And then also, lastly, we've talked about this a little bit already, but um, you know, Jesus is the agent of creation as well. So John 1, the prologue, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Uh, Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created. Hebrews 1.12, you know, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So God is clearly the one who creates, but creation is ascribed to the son. Uh, in terms of being the active agent of bringing across uh, God's creation. So there's more. I mean, there actually is a lot more. But that's sort of some of the, the general kind of lines of evidence 
that led people to to believe that Jesus was not merely a human being, that he was genuinely God. Now, interestingly enough, the first Christological heresy that we know of was Jesus was so impressive. People were so convinced that Jesus was God that the first century heresy was denying that Jesus was a human being. I mean, think about how much things have shifted since then, where people who knew Jesus in the first century in the early church, there were a lot of people who couldn't believe he was actually a man. You know, they had no problem believing he was God, but they couldn't believe he was a man. I mean, today things are virtually the opposite. People have a hard time believing he was God but and will accept his humanity. So next week then, what we'll do hopefully is we'll look at some of the balancing data. Jesus is clearly God. Look at some of the balancing data, which which indicates that Jesus really was fully human as well. And then we'll put together a little bit about how the early church fathers and some of our creeds established in formulation. How do we hold this data together? Fully God and fully man. We establish those things. Then we try to understand them in a creedal form. Okay. Um, if you come back next week, everyone gets points just for just for showing up and participating. Any quick questions or comments? All right, I'm going to turn it over to Sarah.